0: Hi, this is Edwin Crozier with the Franklin Church of Christ. Thank you for joining us as we open God's Word and study it to learn how we can better serve Him as a congregation and as individual Christians. The lesson you're about to hear is a part of the exciting Jerusalem series. We're learning several keys from the Jerusalem church found in the book of Acts about how to be a victorious congregation. In today's lesson, we're going to learn about how to deal aggressively with church problems. We're going to learn to nip it in the bud. How many of you like the Andy Griffith show? I can still hear Barney Fife say to Andy whenever any kind of problem would come up, Andy, here's what you've got to do. you got to nip it in the bud. you got to nip it in the bud. Nip it, nip it, nip it. You remember Andy, of course, would respond, But Barney, nip it. Now I recognize that repartee was played up for laughs frequently and often in the Andrew Griffith show, and yet there is some truth to that advice. Whenever problems arise, you need to nip it in the bud. You need to get it under control. You need to deal with the problems whenever they came up. At the beginning of this year, we took an ex- a look at the Jerusalem congregation and the keys that they had, which helped them be successful and victorious. And since then, we've taken a look at the first key and noted how they were continually devoted to worship. And we've also studied more in depth the fact that they were united and of one heart and one soul. One of the major keys that they had that helped them out was the fact that they aggressively dealt with problems. Whenever problems came up, they didn't allow them to linger, they didn't allow them just to go on, they nipped it in the bud. They got on it immediately, whatever the problem was. And as we look through the Scripture and at the Jerusalem congregation, we recognize that they dealt with several different kinds of problems. We see three of them. In Acts chapter 5, we see them dealing with the sin problem. In Acts chapter 6, we see them dealing with people problems. In Acts chapter 15, we see them dealing with doctrinal problems. They had the whole gambit, All the kinds of problems that we have today, they had back then. And yet, they were not overcome by them. Today, we act as though if a problem comes up in a church, it's just the death knell of the church. It's over. It's awful. That's not the way it was in the New Testament. They had problems just like we did, but they dealt with them and they grew because of them. In fact, in all three of these cases, when you look at the conclusion of the problem, as they as they dealt with it, as they resolved it and then moved on, in every single case, the Scripture always said that they grew and the word of the Lord continued on mightily and more disciples were coming in and they had unity and they were growing in faith. It was an amazing thing. One of the things that we need to understand is that we'll never get to a time where this congregation or any other congregation doesn't have problems. It will just always happen. And the reason it will always happen is because you and me, are here. Uh, Because we're here and we're going to have problems. We get things wrong sometimes, we're mistaken at times, we commit sins, and sometimes we just don't get along. And because of that, there are going to be problems. But what we learn from the Jerusalem church is not how to keep from having problems, but how to aggressively deal with those problems, how to nip them in the bud so that they will not grow into divisive, dividing problems. I'd like for us to take a look at the Jerusalem church this morning and what they did to deal with these problems. But before we do that, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Our great God and Father in heaven, we praise You because we realize that You are the author of our salvation. We realize that You are the author of the solution to all our problems. And Father, we are so sorry that we cause problems at times, that that we sin, that we turn away from Your Word, that we don't get along with one another. We pray that you would forgive us for those times in our lives and help us to submit to you, to open your word, to study it and understand it, to learn from it, that we might draw closer to you and draw closer to one another. We recognize, Father, that problems will come, but we pray that you would give us the strength to hold close to one another, to work through the problems in order to serve and glorify and honor you. Help us to remember above all that it's not about us, that we're not the ones that Deserve the glory, that we shouldn't seek the glory, but rather, Father, that the glory is for You. And we pray that we'll give it to You. We thank You, Father, for Your Son, who has overcome our greatest problem, the problem of our sin. And we pray that we'll always look to Him and remember the sacrifice He's made. Be with us, Father, as we continue throughout this service of worship, that our hearts will be open to Your Word, that, our, that we'll worship You in spirit and truth, that we'll honor and praise and glorify You Your way, And it will not turn away from what Your Word has said and has directed us. It will seek You according to Your ordinance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The very first problem that we see dealt with is the sin problem in Acts chapter 5. You'll remember in Acts chapter 5, that's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Barnabas, of course, had sold some land and given all the proceeds and laid it at the apostles' feet in order to deal with the needs of the saints there in Jerusalem. And Ananias and Sapphira come along, and according to the text, they sold some land, then brought a whole bunch of money to the apostles' feet and said, This is all that we've got for our land. But they lied. Notice what happened here in Acts 15, beginning at verse, uh, beginning of verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. In verse 7, there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they'll carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. Verse 12, At the hands of the apostles many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number. Can you imagine, after hearing the story, why some of the folks were afraid to hang out with the apostles? What an amazing event! But they dealt with the problem quickly. I want you to notice a few things about how they dealt with this issue of Ananias and Sapphira's sin. The first thing that we need to recognize is that these Jerusalem Christians understood that this sin was about Ananias and Sapphira's relationship with God. That was the key important thing. There in verse 4, at the end of the verse, it says, You haven't lied to men, but to God. Peter said, this isn't about what you've done to us. This isn't about your relationship with the folks in this congregation. This is about your relationship with God. And sin severs that relationship. And so, as they dealt with this sin, they didn't step back and think about the relationship of Ananias and Sapphira in the church. They didn't ask who their parents were, or who their brothers and sisters were, or who their cousins were. They didn't ask what position they held within the congregation. They didn't ask how much they gave and would be losing out on that. They simply looked at the fact that they had sinned and that severed their relationship with God. This was about Ananias and Sapphira and what they'd done to the Lord. They'd lied to Him. And because Jerusalem recognized what this sin was really about and what sin is really about, they dealt with it quickly and they dealt with it properly. The second thing I want you to notice is they recognized that sin comes from Satan. There in verse 3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land? Why has Satan influenced you to do this? That's one of the things that we have to understand. Sin comes from Satan. Every sin comes from Satan. And if we allow the influence of Satan to take place within a congregation, then all it's going to do is it's going to spread. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 6, Paul said to the Corinthian brethren, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. A congregation cannot allow the influence of Satan to dwell within the congregation because all it will do is grow and continue to cause problems. We go on and recognize that the Jerusalem Christians understood that sin came from the sinner's own free will. While Peter recognized Satan's influence in verse 3, there in verse 4 he said, "...while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart?" He understood that Ananias and Sapphira had done this voluntarily of their own free will. And that even though Satan's influence was there, They recognized that Ananias and Sapphira voluntarily allowed the influence of Satan to affect them. And so as they looked at the sin, they didn't ask, well, what about their upbringing? They didn't ask about their parentage. They didn't ask about their genes. They didn't ask about their circumstances and their situation and how bad they'd had it as they grew up. They just recognized that Ananias and Sapphira were now Christians. They were new creatures in Christ and they were expected to behave accordingly. They were supposed to grow in Christ and this kind of rebellion was not allowed among Christians. And because they understood that sin comes from free will, it's not genetic, it's not predisposition. Because sin comes from free will, they dealt with it and they dealt with it quickly. In fact, that's the fourth thing. We just have to hone in on that. They dealt with the sin quickly. And this happened in chapter 5 and verse 2. They kept back some of the price. They brought it later laid it at the apostles' feet and immediately Peter is dealing with this. Immediately. One of the things that I think often happens for us is that we're so often, and, and I, I think we should do this to some degree, but sometimes I think maybe we do it overboard, is that we want to give folks the benefit of the doubt. And so every little glimmer of hope that they offer our way, we'll latch onto that and say, well, we're not going to do anything about it yet because maybe they're coming around. And one of the things that amazes me about Ananias and Sapphira is Ananias and Sapphira were still coming to church. And yet because they sinned, Peter didn't step back and say, well, now wait a minute, brethren. You know, they are attending regularly, and they are giving some. And so maybe that's a glimmer of hope that in the end, everything will turn around and it'll be all right. Maybe let's just, let's just sit back and sweep it under the rug and see what will happen over time. And, and if, it, if it doesn't correct itself over time, then we'll do something about it. They didn't do that. They dealt with it immediately. Now, of course, before we move on, I think we do need to modify this a little bit, deal with the fact that this is an extremely miraculous event. That this is not necessarily the absolute pattern for how we deal with folks who sin within our congregation. This is not establishing the pattern that when somebody sins in the congregation, we're supposed to kill them. First of all, I want you to recognize the miraculous nature of this. This was actually God taking this vengeance upon Ananias and Sapphira. This was not Peter's decision to do this. This was God's decision to do this. And because God is no longer working with those miraculous gifts of the Spirit, we're not going to see this take place today. Second, I want you to notice that even within the pattern of the New Testament church, Peter himself, the one who had been involved in this situation with Ananias and Sapphira, in Acts chapter 8, when the gospel had come to Samaria... Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 20, Peter said to Simon, remember Simon the sorcerer had said, give this to me, let me pay money so that I can have your gifts. Peter didn't say, oh, that's it, you've sinned, we're going to kill you. Peter in Acts chapter 8 and verse 20 said, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if possible the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourself so that nothing of what you've said may come upon me. So Peter didn't view this as some type of established pattern that when somebody sinned they were supposed to kill him. If that was the way it worked, who among us would be alive today? That's that's not... But the pattern is that we're supposed to deal with it quickly. This issue with Ananias and Sapphira, I think, is actually... This is the way God has worked all the way along. Under the Old Covenant, you remember the story in Leviticus 10 of Nadab and Abihu? When Nadab and Abihu did something wrong as priests of God... God struck them down. But you know what's very interesting? You can read throughout the entirety of Old Testament history, there were all kinds of priests who did things wrong, and God didn't strike them down like that. But what He did was at the beginning of the covenant, He established an example that everyone for generations to follow could look back and say, you know what, if I'm going to glorify God, I better glorify God His way. And God did the same thing in the New Covenant. With Ananias and Sapphira, He gave us an example there at the beginning of the covenant that said, you're a Christian now, live right. But for us as a congregation, what we learn from this is that when we have sin problems within the congregation, we need to deal with them and we need to deal with them quickly. We do have a pattern, Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew chapter 18, beginning at verse 15, Jesus said, if your brother sins, this is Matthew 18:15, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two or more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Here is the pattern for us. If you know that somebody is doing something wrong, he says he doesn't say go to the elders, he doesn't say wait on the elders to figure it out. He says you go talk to him privately, individually, on your own so that the matter can hopefully just stay between you two. If he still won't listen, then bring a couple of witnesses so that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact can be established. If they they repent, that's great. You've won your brother, the sin's covered. And it hasn't gotten out among everybody. He doesn't have to to, to lose face in front of everybody necessarily. But if he doesn't repent, then you take it to the church. That's when you go to the elders and say, look, this brother or this sister is doing this and we've got to do something about it. If they won't listen to the church coming to them, then of course we take the disciplinary action of withdrawing from them. And they become to us as a tax collector... And a Gentile. We sever that relationship. And those those relationships that we would have had, we cut those off and that type of physical fellowship that we might have had with them. But we need to remember what Paul said in Second Thessalonians chapter three and verse fifteen. In Second Thessalonians chapter three and verse fifteen, even though we've withdrawn from somebody, they've rebelled and not repented, and we've had to take disciplinary action, we need to remember Second Thessalonians three fifteen. Do not regard him as an enemy but admonish him as a brother. This person is still a brother that needs to be admonished, that needs to be talked to about their sin, needs to be helped to overcome that sin. And we've got to keep that balance in mind. Jerusalem dealt with the sin problem, and they dealt with it quickly. The second kind of problem in Acts chapter 6 we find is a people problem. Personalities. Issues among people that were causing problems. Acts chapter 6, beginning at verse 1, says, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It's not desirable for us to neglect the Word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we'll devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. This statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, excuse me, and Philip, Prochorus, and Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying they laid their hands on them. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Here's a people problem. There's an issue, specifically a racial issue. The Hellenistic widows are not being taken care of. The Hebrew widows are. The Hellenistic widows are not. They're being overlooked. And so the Hellenistic Christians came and offered a complaint and said, this just isn't right. Something has to be done about this. I want you to notice a few keys, though, about how the Jerusalem church dealt with this problem. Number one, They didn't get defensive. They didn't mount a counterattack. That's one of the things that impresses me the most, oftentimes with people problems. If somebody has a problem with me and they come up to me and say, you know, I really don't like this about you. What's my natural response? Oftentimes, my natural response, well, that's all right. There's a lot of things about you that I don't like either. And we, we start to mount this counterattack, and we get defensive, and start trying to explain this away and that away, and then what's wrong with you, and why I don't have to listen to you, and your complaint, and all that kind of stuff. I, I'm not the only one that's been through that, am I? We've all done that. But here, when these Hellenistic, Hellenistic Christians offer this accusation, the Hebrews didn't get all upset. They didn't get defensive. They didn't mount a counterattack. They didn't get all upset and say, "Well, why don't you get your own Hellenistic Christians to deal with this?" They just dealt with the problem. They said, here's an issue. We're going to resolve it. And that's one of the things that we have to do if we're going to overcome people problems. The second thing is that we need to be able to go the extra mile to demonstrate understanding and trust. A lot of times these kind of situations come up simply because we don't understand each other. Specifically, here with the Hebrews and the Hellenists, ...with their different backgrounds... ...some being native in Jerusalem and Judea... ...and some being from other lands... ...they had different cultures... ...they had different ways of doing things... ...who knows... ...but perhaps this was just a a misperception... ...and a misunderstanding... ...that was causing this overlooking... ...of the Hellenistic widows... ...well we don't know exactly what was going on... ...but I know that in our people problems... ...that's often what it is... ...it's misperception... ...it's misunderstanding... ...and in in order to keep from getting defensive... ...and mounting a counterattack, ...what we need to do is bend over backwards... To understand the one who's offering the complaint, and to trust them, to realize, look around at these people here. These are good people here. Nobody here is out to get you. Nobody here is trying to take advantage of you. These are good people. And we need to trust them. And if they offer a complaint, if they're upset about something, we need to give them the benefit of the doubt and, and strive to understand why it is that they're having this issue and why they've offered this question or even this accusation and to demonstrate our trust in them. Now, I know that these Christians did this because when I look in verse 5, I find it very interesting that when, they, when the congregation picks seven men, all seven of them have Hellenistic names. I can imagine the Hebrews now standing up and saying, Whoa, now, wait a minute. If we allow these seven Hellenistic men to look over it, they'll probably try to overlook the Hebrew widows to pay us back. But there isn't any of that. We just see them bending over backwards to say, we understand your issue and we trust you. We trust you to take care of this. And so what we're going to do is we're going to appoint these seven men and all seven of them are Hellenistic. And they'll take care of this. And we'll trust them to deal with all the widows fairly. Well, no wonder they could deal with this problem. They trusted one another. And they strove for understanding, even in the midst of issues and problems. The third thing that we recognize from this problem is that we shouldn't hold grudges. How many people have these personality conflicts and finally we kind of patch it up and resolve the differences and we all say everything's okay, but then we kind of just hold that grudge. And we bring it up every now and again. But well, that's not what happened here, and I know that because of verse 7 points out that the Word of God kept on spreading. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. You don't have that kind of growth where you have people problems going on, where you have division that's underlying underneath the surface. You have this kind of growth when people are united, when they've resolved their issues, and when they've put them aside, and they're not holding those grudges. We've all had people problems. We've all had issues with other people and other people have had issues with us. We've all messed things up. And so when we resolve them, why don't we just go ahead and put it aside? We don't want people holding grudges against us, do we? And so we ought not hold grudges against others for things that they've done in the past, even when they actually did them. Because we've done it to them. Resolve the issue, put it behind us. And we'll be able to deal with these kind of personality problems, these people problems. The third kind of problem that they dealt with in Jerusalem was the doctrinal problem, perhaps one of the most difficult ones to deal with. In Acts chapter 15, we find that there were men, there were Pharisees, who were teaching that as the Gentiles became Christians, that first they had to become Jews. They had to be circumcised, as the law of Moses said, if they wanted to serve God as Christians. But of course, we know now, As Paul and the apostles knew that that was not God's intention, that they weren't supposed to do that. And we have this this long debate. We're not going to read this entire chapter, but we know the story. As they debated over this, as Paul and Barnabas talked about all the things that God had done through them with the Gentiles, as Peter talked about what God had done through him with Cornelius and the Gentiles, as James referred back to what the Old Testament prophesied. And they finally decided, as an entire congregation, that, you know what, circumcision is not necessary. And they wrote this letter and they sent it out to all the churches where false teachers had gone from Judea to correct that teaching. This is really, to me, one of the most amazing chapters in all of the Bible as they dealt with this doctrinal problem. The very first thing I want you to notice about this is that they debated the issues. They didn't dismiss them. If we look in verse 6 of Acts chapter 15, the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And there, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, In our society today, we don't want that debate. We want to shove everything under the rug and just kind of patch over and say, Oh, it's all right. We're all going to kind of pretend to be united. But what they did when a doctrinal problem came up is they debated it. They argued it. They discussed it. They didn't dismiss it. Because the reality is, is that you cannot have unity until you allow the issues to come out to the front and you discuss it openly using God's Word as the standard and then submitting to God's Word. So we've got to, we've got to learn how to debate the issues and not dismiss them. The second thing that we learn from Acts chapter 15 is that we've got to understand that we can understand God's will. When you take a look at Verse 7 and following is Peter says, Hey, do you remember what the Holy Spirit did with me and the Gentiles? And then on down further as Paul and Barnabas stand up and say, Well, let us tell you what the Holy Spirit has done through us with the Gentiles. And then James later, he says, Well, do you remember what the Holy Spirit said through the prophets? Do you realize what that demonstrates? These men believed they could understand what the will of the Spirit was. These men believed that if they just considered what the Spirit had revealed, they could figure this out and understand what God wanted them to do. A lot of folks today have the idea that, well, there's no sense discussing all these issues. We really can't understand the will of God. But Do you remember Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 17? In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 17, Paul said, So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. I recognize that there are going to be issues that you and I might disagree on that we decide, you know, that doesn't affect anybody's standing before God. We're we're not going to worry about that one. But the issues that they were dealing with here dealt with salvation. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5 demonstrates that. Beginning at verse 2. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he's under obligation to keep the whole law. You've been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. And so because of that, they went back to what the Spirit had revealed and they said, we can't understand this. We better understand this. We better debate this and talk about this and get this out in the open. But in order to do that, you have to believe we can understand. The third thing I want you to notice as we consider this is that we need to focus on the problem and not on the personalities. How often have you seen where doctrinal issues are brought up and the real issue is not the doctrine at all. but are just personalities. We're actually back dealing with people problems. Or how often do doctrinal problems come up but instead of dealing with the doctrinal issue... They start attacking the person. I can almost picture it now as Paul and Barnabas come into Jerusalem and they start telling everybody what happened among the Gentiles and the Pharisees stand up and say, Wait a minute, were you circumcising these guys? I can imagine Barnabas now saying, These are Pharisees. Do you remember all the trouble that Jesus had with the Pharisees? Nothing they say can be right. And then just passing over it, attacking the personality instead of dealing with the issue. How many times today are folks just accused of being Pharisees instead of what they say being dealt with? That's not what Barnabas did. That's not what Paul did. That's not what the elders and apostles in Jerusalem did. They said, let's look at the issue. And they dealt with the issue. They went to what the Spirit had revealed about circumcision, and they dealt with the issue. And then finally, what amazes me the most, because I've been involved in a lot of problems... I wasn't always the problem, but yes, sometimes I was. I've been involved or heard about all kinds of problems in churches and I've seen folks deal with sin problems and people problems and doctrinal problems and it just amazes me as I look back at Acts 15 as they were having this major issue that could totally blow the congregation apart. Verse 22 just amazes me. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. This wasn't just the elders and the apostles saying, we figured it out, we've got a whole bunch of people here that don't get it yet, but this is what we're saying. The whole church agreed with this. They actually came to unity. That means the Pharisees who had been a part of this congregation that were involved in this debate, they were canted their position and came around to the truth. And this provides our fourth key. And that is that we've got to be more interested in submitting to the Spirit than defending our own doctrine. I think what we find here, with all the problems that Pharisees had at times, and with the fact that Judaizing teachers would continue on throughout the New Testament, at least here with these folks that were in Jerusalem that were involved in this debate, these were folks that were actually interested in defending the truth. They simply wanted to do what God said. They just misunderstood and were mistaken. And they were more interested in submitting to the Spirit than defending their own doctrine. Therefore, when the actions of the Spirit through Paul and Barnabas and Peter, when the prophecy of the Spirit through the Old Testament was demonstrated, they realized these guys don't have to be circumcised. And they submitted to that. And that's what we've got to do. We've got to be more interested in submitting to the Spirit than defending our own doctrine. You know, one of the biggest problems that we have today is that people just don't know their Bibles. But they've got their opinion. They think it ought to be this way or they think God would allow that or they think God won't allow that. Maybe it's because that's the way their church has always done it or maybe it's because that's the way their church never did it. Who knows? But there's no book, chapter, and verse. We've got to be people who want to submit to the Spirit no matter what it says and not be people that are just out to defend whatever we think is right before we look to the Word of God. That's what they did here. Of course, we recognize that there will be some doctrinal issues that come up and there will be some folks who are more interested in defending their doctrine than submitting to the Spirit. In that case, we have to remember problem number one and how to deal with the sin problem. But the Jerusalem church dealt with problems. And they dealt with their problems quickly. And that's exactly what we need to do. The Franklin church can be a thriving, growing, awesome body of Christ. But one of the keys, we've got to be like Jerusalem. We've got to learn to deal with problems quickly, aggressively, and correctly. And if we do, all right, now hold on, guys. You know I'm going to tell you when to get ready. Y'all are about to miss the most important statement of the whole sermon putting up your Bibles and pulling out your songbooks. When we do this, we can set Franklin, Middle Tennessee, and the entire world ablaze with God's gospel. But only, only when we learn to follow these kings. We've got to continually be devoted to worship. We've got to be one in heart and soul. And we've got to aggressively deal with problems. And we will overcome and be victorious. I hope our lesson was helpful to you today as we've learned how to deal with problems that can come up in any and every congregation. We learned about sin problems, people problems, and doctrinal problems. In dealing with sin problems, we must first recognize that sin severs a person's relationship with God. Second, we must remember that ultimately all sin comes from Satan, and therefore we must not allow his influence to continue in the congregation. Thirdly, we must remember that sin stems from a person's free will choice. And fourthly, we must remember to deal quickly with sin. Regarding people problems, we learned that we must deal with the issue and not mount a counterattack or get defensive. Secondly, we learn that we must bend over backwards to demonstrate understanding and trust. And thirdly, we learn we must never hold grudges. Regarding doctrinal problems, We learned that we must debate the issues, not dismiss them. Secondly, we must recognize that we can understand what the Bible says about doctrinal issues. Thirdly, we must remember to discuss the problem and not personalities. And fourthly, we must be more interested in submitting to the Spirit than defending our doctrine. I hope this was helpful to you. If you have any questions about church problems and how to deal with them, or if you would like to know how to deal with your own personal sin problem, you can contact us through our website at www.franklinchurchofchrist.com or by calling us at 615-794-2359. Further, if you've enjoyed this lesson and someone's given it to you and you'd like to hear more, we invite you to come to our website at franklinchurchofchrist.com. You're free to download as many of the lessons as you'd like. We have the audio and outline formats. You can study them. You can share them. Anything that will glorify God and help people here on earth glorify Him and grow closer to Him. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him. But more importantly, may you richly bless God.